thank you, um, thank you to Mary and Tristan for inviting me today. Um, when we were preparing this session, Tessa Weber emailed all of the other medievalists on the panel, and we sort of did a dividing up of the spoils, and I got code ecology. And I have to say, I'm not primarily a code ecologist in my research, as say Orietta is, or Eric Clarkel, for example, but like all manuscript scholars, I do pay attention to code ecological matters in my research and my teaching. I don't therefore have a proper right to define code ecology, but I just before I started wanted to add a, a kind of working definition of how I see code ecology functioning for me in my teaching and my research. And um, as we've heard, it's a new term, <coughs> so I'm going to um, take the advantage to um, give it a sense, a, a definition. Um, for me, it's not primarily about locating and placing manuscripts, so it can certainly help with that. It's about understanding the history of the production and use of books um, and the texts in them as well from the material evidence of those books. Just as archaeologists not only place pots in series and put them in particular locales, they also think about the life of the makers and users of those pots, for example, to parody rather. Um, so that's how I see um, the study of code ecology, uh, as a way into a kind of cultural and social and economic and intellectual history from material evidence. Um, sort of in the way that Tobias was mentioning with the Vossian um, manuscripts of Cicero and, and our understanding of their later use at Corby, um, sort of at the study, um, part of reception studies too, as Nigel Palmer was um, asking about. And that's important in English studies, um, as Julia said, that's sort of where I, I'm coming from, where there's been lately, if you like, a sort of a turn or an interest in, turn to or interest in the material form of texts. So I'm going to talk about that sort of aspect of code ecology today. Talking about teaching code ecology is not easy because unlike the rudiments of more elementary subjects such as literacy and mathematics, there's not a large literature about teaching um, code ecology. There's some by museum curators on teaching with objects, there's a little bit of discussion of that, and some good stuff by special collections <coughs> librarians, especially in small collections in the USA, where they're often quite self-reflexive in American library studies about teaching with books. But I'm going to talk more from experience than authority. My, um, my courses um, um, often reflect those that I myself experienced as a student, including um, under the teaching of Richard Beadle in Cambridge. Then we were set, as are many students still, to write a catalogue description as the, sort of the end point of studying the material form of a medieval manuscript. I actually begin um, slightly differently with a catalogue description, asking my students to read them. For me, catalogue descriptions are uh, something that students need to be able to read from the outset of their research, um, and descriptions also of manuscripts where they find them in editions and other reference works. That's a tough thing to do in week one of Michaelmas as a new graduate student, having previously only written essays about the wife of Bath and her feelings. Um, <laughs> catalogue descriptions are written in algebra, I think, as so it often looks. You know that mythical novel that was sort of written in algebra, that sort of postmodernist novel. But I do this because our students are going to read more catalogue descriptions than they write, so they need to learn to read them from day one. I want them to be able to draw upon them um, from the outset and to know that that symbol there means this, that abbreviation there means that, um, that kind of thing. I also want the, to ask the, those students, though, as they look at those catalogue descriptions, to consider from day one, from class one, how they would use information about manuscripts, whether their own or that taken from secondary sources, to conjure up research questions and projects which those descriptions bring to mind. What would this description make them wonder about next, if you like, beyond description? What does it give them information about beyond the manuscript? 
If you like, a catalogue description proceeds topographically through a book. Instead, I'm going to ask them to kind of flip it up and turn it into a narrative, not going from folio to folio, but moment to moment in the story of the making and use of that book. This is one of my favourite examples because it's from probably one of the most useful reference books in my field. It's Enar Kerr's catalogue of manuscripts containing Anglo-Saxon. I always set this one. I, I change my teaching materials regularly, but never this one. This is a description of um, Cambridge UL manuscript FF123, and Kerr tells us all sorts of wonderful things, with only the date a little bit modified by Dunville slightly. And I ask the students, what's this book like? And then, as I do with all these catalogue descriptions, I get out photographs that I've taken of it. And um, they all say, oh! there's a kind of intake of breath. And I say, well, Kerr did mention it. As he mentions, Warmold reproduces some pictures, almost only implying that they're in the book, really. Um, but there they are, um, or there's one of them. And so I, I want to teach them as well to read catalogues with a slightly critical eye, if you like, even the most fabulous catalogue, and I don't mean any, any kind of um, um, criticism of this catalogue whatsoever. Even the most um, brilliant catalogue has its emphases, its focuses, its biases, things it leaves in and out, of necessity. It's got a job to do. And then we discuss how we would turn this manuscript and its catalogue description into a research project. We might take an illustrated gloss Psalter to think about the Psalms in Anglo-Saxon England, about word and image, about literacy and language knowledge, about reading aloud or reading silently, about Latin and the vernacular in that culture, about the ruling or lack thereof as varies from different gloss, one gloss Psalter to the next for the two levels of text and what that might tell us about malice aforethought in laying out the book, about the order of copying, about the mastery of scripts, about decorative styles, all of these things. I call it fantasy football league research projects, where you invent your ideal research project. Now, some of these questions are codicological. Some are not, strictly speaking. And that's because my students are generally studying codicology and paleography, and I think Tessa might say something similar about her students, not often for its own sake, not often for their own sake, but because they're, they're looking to study other disciplines, history, literature, and, his, and historical linguistics. One challenge for me, and the most important, is to get students how to, know, to, how to know how to use what they learn about code ecology while addressing other bits of the humanities. Few will become manuscript catalogers, and even fewer, and few, sorry, will become code ecologists. Some will, of course, do that, and I encourage those who really want to specialise in this line, and there are a couple here today. Um, but the others are not to be discouraged from mastering code ecology just because it's not their main interest. They might not have a special eye, but they might have a special need for this subject, whatever their primary topic or approach. <coughs> Therefore, to inspire the perhaps reluctant or disinterested, um, uninterested, sorry, and to help the students make sense of those algebraic descriptions, I also begin in the first week with a visit to the Bodleian, again, thanks to Martin Kaufman. Um, we keep having to thank him, he's so important. Um, for what my sceptical colleagues call, mockingly, the book-stroking class. Um, I'd like to reassure Martin that no books were stroked in the making of this image. But, um, but this class also can provoke audible gasps, um, showing an illustrated role of the Arma Christi did that this term, the last term, sorry. And um, that's very flattering as a, as a teacher, of course. And teaching does include an element of theatre or persuasive rhetoric to capture the imagination. That's not to be dismissed, I think. Um, but the use, and the use of objects, their immediacy, their visual interest and tangibility or haptic qualities is often said to foster engagement. And that's why museums and libraries often have 
visits for school children, say, with object handling, as they call it, at the Ashmolean. It's a really important part of contemporary education. And indeed, in the Bodleian last year, with Martin's help, we were, were able to set up some um, internships for two DPhil students to teach classes um, themselves to undergraduates, which increased the library's capacity for such teaching and helped us all to reflect a bit more on why we do such teaching. Beyond that, though, the, the haptic, tangible properties of books or roles are crucial parts of code ecology. As I say, survey the elements of the book in sequence, materials, structure, layout, text, decoration, my classes begin, therefore, by discussing the animal skins and then the paper from which books were made. Some people in each new class each year become transfixed by the brute animality of manuscripts, whether through a gross fascination with anything a bit gory, um, or through a sort of a theoretical, if you like, a sort of literary theoretical and eco-critical interest in the, the, the body and in, in the animal in manuscripts. Here's one skin not fully scraped off, from its, off, off of its fur and then used as a binding fragment in 14th century Cat Street. I hope it's not a cat. Um, but um, <laughs> students often have copious questions about this element of code ecology and want to pursue it for their coursework, and in some cases for doctoral research, as some have. And those questions reveal points of code ecology that students' questions reveal to me, points of code ecology that are still, I think, not 100% clear to me, at least. Um, what sorts of supply chain were there for animal skins, um, for example? Um, work by historians of urban trade, such as Marianne Koroleski for Exeter, um, some work pointed out to me by a student, Hannah Riley, has begun to answer some of those questions, or um, the astonishing new research by archaeologists in Durham, either um, in York, Matthew Collins, and the BioArc team. So there's more to learn in this field. But this is the element of code ecology that students trained in text-based disciplines such as history or linguistics or literature um, often um, find hard because they just don't have those sorts of archaeological trainings or skills um, and often don't have the time within a piece of MST, a master's coursework, to do new research in this field. That's an unhappy thing for a teacher to say, to sort of have a limited sense of what's possible for students. And um, I want to stress that students do often do excellent work in this line, but it is difficult. How do you take something so untextual and fit it into a textual discipline in the rest of the humanities? Something as untextual as, as which kind of animal skin this might be. But just knowing about such animal material, materiality as knowing how to read a catalogue can inform um, your, your thinking about books and their contexts in other ways, in other useful ways. Of course, it informs your reading of certain literary works, and that just came up in the previous session. We were talking about um, you know, sort of the way that um, some classical authors comment on their material um, transmission. Cicero, for example, and Shane, as elucidated by Shane Butler, for instance. And in English studies, think knowing, just knowing about parchment makes more sense of the Exeter Riddle um, 24, of those poems about Christ's skin as a charter, or Lydgate's lovely poem, much overlooked, The Horse, the Goose and the Sheep, where the sheep is, is, wins the debate because his, his, um, his skin makes the books of, of, of Holy Scripture. These works reflect on parchment as a reminder of the interconnectedness of the material book and spiritual things. And more widely, beyond literary studies, keeping in mind the expense of resources and their networks, uh, the networks which supply them in parchment or paper, um, 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 can, can help us to think about the social and economic context for the circulation and reception of texts. 
say, obtaining large herds to supply, supply a revived monastic library um, in the 11th and 12th centuries. Or, for example, one from a current MST student, um, Francesca Moll, um, thinking about an Icelandic manuscript that is tiny, that's my finger at the bottom, um, and made in palimpsest, which tells us perhaps a story about the resource poverty of the Icelandic community, um, or the different kinds of resources, and about the intimacy, perhaps, with which these prayers were read in that community. There's another more specific use of, code, of codicology for understanding the circulation and reception of texts, at least since Henry Bradshaw's work, which Richard Beadle has recently um, illuminated further. People have studied the physical makeup of the book in order to understand the composition even and circulation of the text. Those approaches are still proving fruitful in the study of classical texts, even though there's a long time lag, as we were saying, between often composition and copy, as for instance in Michael Reeves' brilliant work. And a similar approach has been fruitful in the study of um, uh, early modern printing in the so-called new bibliography of the 20th century that medievalists in English studies often cite as their inspiration um, too. Um, uh, uh, Humbert, among medievalists and, uh, with a codicological specialism, have noted, has noted that our knowledge of the mere integrity or coherence of a, of a manuscript, to say nothing of a miscellany, um, can help us to understand the integrity or coherence of the texts it contains. So it's crucial for textual criticism in all kinds of ways, um, um, beyond as well, or as well as um, correcting corruptions um, and um, textual errors. For instance, recent arguments have debated the importance of loose leaves in the textual tradition of Piers Plowman, the great, um, greatest, I think, Middle English poem. Um, Lawrence Warner, Julia's colleague, has been working on that. Or in the evidence of the foul papers, perhaps, and perhaps, therefore, of the compositional process of Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida. And the, the, the um, verso there is a tapped-in leaf of passages translated from a different source, interestingly. One problem with teaching code ecology um, um, through, uh, like this, though, is that such study works best by examples and is not readily generalizable. Um, uh, a sort of um, predecessor in, in Oxford, Ralph Hanna, in his fascinating textbook on manuscript studies based on his Oxford teaching, says on page one um, that he's going to teach us code ecology through a, a series of, uh, and they're scintillating, a series of scintillating case studies, a method which he calls piecemealism. It's a new ism, I like it. Um, stressing that one needs to learn book history by lateral analogical thinking, by applying tools uncovered in one situation to a new situation or example. And he says, therefore, he'll teach by example and not give us a logically organized handbook. Of course, he's selling short the riches of that book, but it's an interesting statement of method. Problem is, you can't teach the structure, as he's admitting, of all extant manuscripts. And even if there was a sort of union catalogue of all medieval manuscripts, um, we'd still need to teach our students and ourselves how to use that information in any one particular case, how to interpret it if our main goal is not the physical structure of the manuscript. So I've got a collation, so what? Um, so we need to inculcate the ability to notice where and then understand how the form of a codex might teach us how a codex was composed, transmitted, or read. Can we teach people when to use codicology in relation to other disciplines? This struck me last term when I, was, um, I asked the students to go and pick a book in the Bodleian, a manuscript book in the Bodleian, and send me their collation formula to check they mastered what we were doing in class. One of those students I'm going to mention, Annalise Griffiths, is here, so she'll have to blush at this point. Um, but Annalise and another student, Isabel Kane, came back to me and with wonderful conscientiousness and said that they shouldn't hand in their collations because their manuscripts had been regularly acquired in eights, and that was far too easy. Um, so... <laughs> And um, there's one, that's not entirely innate, I think that was Annalise's. 
and that one as well. And so that was that. You know, well, we just spent all this time on singletons and added choirs and missing by folio and you know. So what do you do if you've got that? Good question. The concern is actually really perceptive, because teaching code ecology for the benefit of other disciplines, one might go looking for the outlandish. How does one look for the ordinary? How do we under make sense of this sort of thing? Maybe code ecology is useless for the student of other disciplines. Now, I don't want to be really limiting here. Of course, large-scale quantitative studies of, say, acquiring patterns even between eights and tens and twelves over the centuries, um, or between diversity and regularity, can be revealing. For example, if you're working on 15th century vernacular books, as I most often do, then a manuscript that's acquired regularly is, is not rare, but is sort of so much not the only way of doing things, that regularity becomes interest, as interesting as irregularity. And if we were to follow continental code ecologists, for example, we could assemble large-scale quantitative studies of different features of, of, of the codex. Um, and Orietta's done used this kind of data, for example, to illuminate one particular manuscript of Middle English verse, a very important one, to put it in context. But what if, um, what if there's a limit to what this code ecology can teach us in any one particular book? I mean, few people in a master's have time to, you know, quantify all the books in the library um, in particular ways, although one of the DPhil students here, Daniel Sawyer, has had a go, I think. Um, he's done some wonderful kind of uh, sort of counting up of things. Well, how do we then, um, if, if code ecology might not seem so helpful for our other disciplines, um, um, what, is the, you know, what, do we, what are we going to do about that? Or perhaps we need to invert that question and ask what are the limits of other disciplines that they're not ready to learn from code ecology yet? And how can we extend history, literature, um, historical linguistics? As I mentioned, lately there's been a renewed interest in literary linguistic studies in learning from code ecology the study of the material text or historical pragmatics. And mea culpa, I've run a seminar in the material text, so I'm guilty of those sort of modish phrases in a way. The shift to new media in our own culture makes us attentive to the differences of different um, kinds of format and, and, and media, I think, in the past. There's a wider fascination in the humanities at present in material culture. There are all those popular books on the history of the dining table and the role of the potato in Western culture and that kind of thing. Um, and there's a theoretical interest in philosophy and literary studies in object-oriented ontology. I won't even open up that very complicated topic. But um, there's an interest in material things that you know, stalks the land, and code ecology is part of that. And literary critics have always been interested in not just what a text says, but how it says it. Is it a sonnet? Is it a novel, for example? And so we might think about the material form as well as the content. I see a risk that we attend only to the material form. The number of times that visiting scholars in the library have called me over and said, oh, can you help me collate this manuscript? And I say, what's the text here? And they say, oh, I haven't read it yet. You think, oh, oh that's where I'd start. Um, so uh, there's a risk that we only attend to the material form. Um, there's a risk that we see it too deterministically, as I think sort of Nigel Wilson was hinting at earlier. And there's a risk that we see it as perhaps more interesting than it was to its original makers and users. Maybe not all the features of a, material features of a codex were really done consciously or meant to be noted consciously by the user. Um, the print bibliographer Thomas Tanseller makes that point. Not everything in a book is meant to be looked at. Think, for instance, of the barcodes on the back of a paperback. They weren't really meant for you. They were meant for somebody in Waterstones or Blackwells. Um, let's observe, then, codicologically, some things that might not meant to be seen, let alone interpreted. What about ruling patterns, for instance? Are they ever meaningful? Are they ever meant or intended? Um, 
Here, for example, some have been clearly modified or done in two stages and two colours, two different kind of patterns. That might suggest, if not forethought, then rethinking. So that might seem meant, intended. What about the most pages, though, in manuscripts which have identical ruling patterns or identical choiring or a lack of ruling from leaf to leaf to leaf to boring leaf? You know, what do you do about that kind of samey old book? Um, I'm, I'm being tendentious, obviously. Um, to take another element of codicology, choiring, um, um, like, like the boring manuscript regularly choired in eights, not fit for study, even for homework. Um, Humbert's work on, on stratigraphy has terms for places where physical breaks in the choirs do not have any interesting um, coincidence with or offer any insight into textual divisions or scribal stints. He calls such parts of books uniform or homogeneous or unarticulated, very unarticulate perhaps, they don't speak to us. Or when holes and deficiencies are in the parchment from the shape of the brute animal, um, some scribes brilliant ex brilliantly exploited them, and Henrika in her inaugural lecture a few weeks ago, if you saw that, um, showed some brilliant examples from Maidingham where the scribes had accented the accentuated the holes and highlighted them decoratively. Other scribes tried to kind of cover them up in some way. Um, we might say that they, well, they either ignore them, the writing skips past them, or they, they sort of repair them. They seem to occlude, occlude the material traces of animal skins and the production process, as if to say, well, I'm not interested in thinking about the dead body behind the book. So to dwell on them as we do, codicologically, might be to be thinking rather anachronistically. Maybe this is bad history to be a codicologist. For me, that challenge makes me question what I, as a student of manuscripts, language and literature in the past, do look at. On the one hand, with these patches, we could mischievously point out that repairing something badly only highlights the initial defect. If we were literary critics in the 1980s, we'd say that the text, was, by concealing it, was revealing its material unconscious. Um, I'm going to go and write that article later. <laughs> off the peg. Um, that, on the other hand, we could instead admit that, that what we find are indeed homogeneity, orderliness, tidiness in some books, or at least a will to those qualities. And rather than dismissing those qualities, recognise that they're just as fascinating as change, difference, muddle. A hyper-orderly person is no less fascinating to meet than a chaotic person. A cluster of texts copied into a sequence of choirs with no obvious break in the production process tells us something intriguing too, perhaps about planning, control, carefulness. So does a book in which every leaf is ruled identically without slips. But the humanities are not very good at describing sameness, stasis, regularity, commonness. We suffer from the curse of the birth of and, and, and a striking example of. It's very difficult to write an article called Another Boring Same Old Thing. I mean, it's very difficult to do. Um, but code ecology, in its less revelatory moments, in its active attention to everything, as in a manuscript description or catalogue, its kind of uniformity, might train the eye to see such things in new ways. Of course, catalogues with their flat regularity, if you like, could actually obscure the boring. Um, a manuscript description of a complicated manuscript is longer, more noticeable to the reader than of a tidy, simple one. But that attentiveness to everything is a good training, I think, for teaching us um, what to do. As well as looking for meanings and new things and new ph phenomena to interpret, we also might encourage our students to look for things that resist our will to interpret and elaborate and storytell. I began by sketching then, as I always begin by asking, um, by sketching how I always begin by asking the students in my classes what code ecology can offer um, their other disciplines. I'm willing to entertain as a thought experiment the answer nothing, 
But of course, I think it does offer them a lot. It's just that by questioning rather than assuming what it offers, I think we'll learn a lot more about how the manuscript's physical form can tell us about aspects of cultural history. Thank you.